friends, good morning. Welcome to another Sunday edition of Different Church. My name is Hannah. I am the pastor at Different Church and I am so excited that you are here and I am also so excited that we will be having in-person services again starting July 12th. That is just a few short weeks away. So save the date on your calendar. <laughs> this motion is supposed to be in your calendar. I guess that would be in your phone. Um, <laughs> don't forget as always to join the conversation in the comments below if you are watching this on Facebook Live. And we are going to jump right in. So today, our passage is actually a short one, and it comes from the book of poetry and songs that is right in the middle of our Bible, and it's the book called Psalms. We are going to read Psalm 131, which is our passage for today, and then see what it might have to say to us this morning. Let's read together. O oh Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with things too great or too marvelous for me to grasp, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child that no longer cries for its mother's milk. My soul is like that weaned child within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord from this time on and forevermore. This is the word of God for the people of God. Now, Psalm 131 is one in a group of actually 15 psalms that are collectively referred to as the Songs of Ascent. Um, you can read all of them if you would like to, if you start in Psalm 120 and read straight through to Psalm 134. Those are the Songs of Ascent. And this group of songs is called the Psalms of Ascent because they have a superscription um, that introduces each psalm, which essentially means to go up. So every psalm has a superscription that says to go up before it. And it's not explicitly clear what going up <laughs> means exactly, but it's very, very likely that these were songs that were pilgrimage psalms. They were sung by travelers who were on their way to Jerusalem. Now, why were they on their way to Jerusalem? <laughs> because usually for festivals, usually for times of worship. So there were festivals and things on the Jewish calendar that you would make a trip to Jerusalem for. And of course you had perhaps horses, perhaps donkeys to ride on, or perhaps you were walking. You certainly weren't driving, so the trek would be long. And so they would sing these songs on the way. Kind of like if you're on a road trip and you sing 99 bottles of beer on the wall, <laughs> except that these songs are about God, <laughs> not beer. So, this, the group of psalms are relatively short, um, and they have all a theme. So Psalm 131, along with all other 14 that are in this section, they kind of all are about life on the way. They all have something to do with life in between home and your destination. And I think that these words can speak to us, especially now, because for most, if not all, <laughs> of us watching, we're very much in the middle of life on the way. We're very much in the middle of a trek. So in a cosmic sense, we are all traveling between birth and death, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, right? So we're all traveling that path. Um, our beginning and our eventual end in eternity with God. But on a smaller scale, I know that many of us are on the way as well. Some of us are on the way from grade school to college, graduation. Some of us are on the way to a new job, a new career. Some of us are navigating through children leaving home um, or perhaps our parents becoming older, having health issues, passing away. Some of us are traveling through seasons of new life like 
um, babies being born, marriages beginning, relationships beginning. And of course, all of us collectively are on the way from who we are now to who we are becoming. We're all travelers, sojourners here for a little while, (laughs) and we're all attempting to make sense of our lives. Some of us probably do a better job than others. I don't know how good of a job I do sometimes in trying to make sense of our lives and also trying to make sense of what's going on around us in the world and somehow live a life that has meaning with the time that we have. And that is what this psalm is about. So the writer of the psalm begins by invoking the divine name. Now in English, it says, Lord, oh Lord. Um, But one of the ways you can tell if this is the divine name when you're reading scripture, um, I believe the NLT has this, and this is one of the translations that we use, but most translations will have this word Lord, but it will be in all capital letters. So if you see the word Lord in the Old Testament and it's in capital letters, even if it's like a big L and small O-R-D, but the O-R-D is capitalized, even though they're smaller than the L, that means that that is the divine name, which is Yahweh. So the psalmist actually begins by speaking the divine name. And we, we all have different names for God, right? So God is kind of like a placeholder almost. We think God, and we all collectively agree that God is the name of God. <clears throat> However, everybody else has a different way of referring to God when they pray. So for some people, God, they may refer to God as love. They may refer to God as father. They may refer to God, they may specifically to think about Jesus. They may think of God as mother. There's, so there's all kinds of ways to think about God. Um, and there's no wrong way to name God, especially when you're having a, a prayer relationship. However, in the Old Testament, there is a divine name and that divine name is Yahweh. Now we speak that name every once in a while, um, the divine name, but a devout Jew would definitely not speak that name out of respect. Um, so they, they would substitute Lord, but they could write it, of course. So that's why we have the word Lord. And it's very, it's not like, oh, great one, or El Shaddai, or Jehovah. Um, there's all of these names for God. The psalmist very specifically speaks the divine name at the beginning of this psalm to invoke God directly so that there is no question whatsoever who this writer is referring to. The writer is demanding that God hear and receive this song. And so the writer says, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with things too great and too marvelous for me to grasp. So the stance the writer is taking here is kind of like Job at the end of his like crazy encounter with God and he's losing everything and his friends are like dumping on him and then he has this cosmic experience with God. And then at the end, Job kind of takes this posture of recognition that there's always more to know about God and the world than humans could ever possibly imagine. Now, this attitude is not, I'm repeat, is not meant to advocate some kind of complacency or a lack of rigorous inquiry into matters of human life and matters of God. And I find that many people, many churches, many congregations, many faith traditions have interpreted having humility here as needing to suppress inquiry, to suppress academic study that might challenge more simple notions of faith, um, to suppress the idea 
that we can pursue the understanding of God and the world around us and that pursuing and questioning actually doesn't damage our faith, but is part of faith. And I think that notion is quite frankly wrong. (laughs) And of course, if you've been around, you know that. You know that that's a perspective that we have. I think we always have the right, and I would put it even more strongly, we have the duty to to inquire, question, learn, examine, want to know more. And this is part of what it means to love God with your whole heart and mind and soul and strength. The mind is included in that. And y'all know, right? If you've been around for any length of time here, you know that we are completely comfortable with questions being asked, even if every once in a while (laughs) the question being asked makes me a little uncomfortable. There are people in our faith community who have varying degrees of belief in God, varying degrees of belief in the so-called normal (laughs) beliefs about God, Um, even varying degrees of belief on what a faith community should look like and what participation should look like. And all of that is fine with me. I will say it has been a long journey for me to become comfortable with all the questions that people can ask. And in the interest of being transparent, (laughs) there are still questions that make me squirm a little bit. I don't want you to think that I have it all together and like there's no question under the sun that you could ask me and I would just be like, oh, that's fine. You can like intellectually, academically, yes, I am open to every single question. But every once in a while, I find out that emotionally, because of my background, my I was raised in a small evangelical Pentecostal church, right? Because of my background, because of who I am as a person, emotionally, I find that every once in a while, a question makes me a little squeamish, like a little squirmy. You put a finger on something and I'm like, no, that's my believey, right? But But academically, intellectually, I know that every question has a place and every question should be addressed thoughtfully. So I just want you to know if questions or thoughts or ideas are posed that are making you uncomfortable, that's fine. (laughs) Intellectually, we know, right, that we have the right to ask anything. But emotionally, sometimes that can still make us a little squirmy. (laughs) And that's okay. That's part of the growing process. If I were never uncomfortable intellectually, then that means I would never be presented with new ideas, new perspectives, new things to think about, new anything. (laughs) If I were completely comfortable in what I believed all the time, then I am not growing. So we should be uncomfortable every once in a while. And I mean, if someone else believes differently than you and that makes you uncomfortable in your feelings, (laughs) as long as you are not trying to suppress that person and what they believe, that's completely normal and fine. You are allowed to be uncomfortable with sometimes with what people say. Um, What we're not allowed to do is have like a negative, like combative, aggressive dialogue, right? We're supposed to have calm, collected, rational kinds of dialogue. So we just have to focus our efforts and attention whenever these questions come up that maybe hit a button for us on how do we navigate through the uncomfortableness so that we can actually have understanding. But here in the passage, we're actually presented with this writer who says, they don't concern themselves with things too marvelous and great for me to grasp. This is not referring to asking questions or to preventing the study of God or the Bible or the world. It's specifically referring to things that will forever and always be beyond our comprehension. Now, two things can be true at once. We can have an understanding of who God is while at the same time, At the same time, we are not even beginning to scratch the surface of understanding who God is, right? So two things can be true at once. We can have some understanding 
and no understanding. <laughs> and that actually has to be true because God has to be, God must be beyond our understanding. If we could completely understand God and learning everything there was to know about God was an attainable goal, then we wouldn't be studying God after all. And this is kind of like a philosophical concept. We are finite human beings. Therefore, if we construct a God that we can imagine in its entirety, we have not constructed God at all. We've constructed something finite, something like ourselves. So, I mean, imagine the most infinite, powerful, never-ending thing that you could possibly dream of. Well, that must be God, right? No. God must necessarily be beyond even our craziest, wildest imagination. Because if God can fit into what we imagine, then we've constructed a God and we're not worshiping God after all, just what we think is God, and on and on. So this all gets very complicated, which is why most people do not enjoy taking philosophy classes. <laughs> um, I don't blame them. Honestly, I personally hated philosophy until I was in seminary and I had the best philosophy teacher in the world. That is the only reason I know anything about philosophy other than there is no spoon, right? So <laughs> I'm completely on the same page with you if philosophy makes you want to be like, <laughs> okay? But to put it in simple terms, if we are finite, God must necessarily be beyond finiteness. God has to be beyond and bigger than anything we can think about. Otherwise, it wouldn't be truly God. And this, to me, is why... True atheism, notice I said true atheism, is a rather illogical concept. Um, and if you're an atheist or you've been one in the past, just stick with me for a minute. <laughs> if, even if this makes you a little uncomfortable. So this is, why, this is where I think of it logically. If I, as a human being, can conclusively say that there is no God, God does not exist, that is a fact, then I am myself placed in the position of being an all-knowing entity. <laughs> Which means that I'm defeating my own argument because I, the all-knowing entity, would then be God. Now, it is very rare that I come across a true atheist. Most of the time, I find people who won't say conclusively, but instead they say, the evidence that I see leads me to conclude that the existence of God is not likely. That I can totally follow logically. <clears throat> of course, I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum. The evidence that I see leads me to conclude that the existence of God is likely. And of course, I'm happy to continue these conversations. I know that we're like <laughs> snippeting things. I'm happy to continue these conversations outside of this medium as well, um, especially when Starbucks reopens, because that's my favorite place in the world to have theological and philosophical discussions. So what we should be taking from the phrase I don't concern myself with things too marvelous and great for me to grasp, is that there will always be things about God, about each other, and about the world that we cannot understand. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try to understand. It just means sometimes <laughs> we need to realize that we are wasting our time, spinning our wheels, thinking about things that perhaps will not have an answer in our lifetimes. And we're actually doing all of that and putting in all of that effort, and it's making our actual real lives worse, not better. So the scripture says in another place, which one of you, by worrying, has added a single hour to their life? In other words, <laughs> are you spending 
so much time dwelling on things that don't have an answer, that the outcome cannot be controlled, that you're neglecting to actually be present here now with the things and the people that do matter. And we all do this to some degree or another. We overthink, we worry, we have intrusive thoughts. All of these plague us at varying degrees during our lives. And so the writer of this psalm is struggling as well. And she says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. And I'm not sure exactly why, but I got the feeling that perhaps we need to hear this message, that perhaps our souls are feeling anything but calm and quiet this week, and that we maybe need a little bit of breathing space collectively as a community. Verse 1 tells us what the writer has not done. Think about things that only bring her more anxiety. Verse 2 tells us what the writer has done. And even though there are plenty of things to give her anxiety and take away her peace, yet she has calmed and quieted her soul. And the word soul here is better understood as entire being, not some spiritual entity that's separate from the body. Um, In the Jewish understanding, the soul would be your whole being. And here, basically what's being said is the totality of this person's life has been calmed. And this is the meaning of shalom, the Hebrew word for peace, which I have tattooed on my arm. (laughs) It's such a deeper meaning because shalom doesn't mean peace. It means wholeness, completeness, oneness, not just peace, but the totality of life being calmed and secured in God. And shalom is what is offered to us if we have faith in God, that same wholeness and completeness and oneness. Now, that doesn't mean that it's going to just happen and it's not going to take effort and real work on our part. But it does mean that on our faith journey, we will learn how to calm and quiet our souls. Even in the middle of chaos, in the middle of uncertainty, in the middle of tragedy or loss, in the middle of just the busyness and never-ending drama of everyday life, in the middle of all of that, we can calm and quiet our souls. And the writer compares this process to a baby who has been weaned. So this baby used to need its mother for everything, food, (laughs) comfort, care, everything. But now the baby has become weaned and it's a child and it doesn't need its mother for food anymore but it comes back anyways for comfort and security. Trust in the Lord, that writer says in closing. Trust now and trust forever in the God that you will never fully understand, but that you can understand enough to know that that same God cares for you. So there are some practical tools if you are feeling the chaos (laughs) this week. Um, you're feeling anything but calm and quiet. And so I'm just going to name a few of them. First of all, I highly recommend meditation. And generally the response I get when I'm like, have you tried meditation? Is people are like, that's really hard. Yes. Yes, it is. (laughs) Meditation is very difficult work. Um, But it will transform your mental ability to calm yourself. So it is worth the effort. Also, if you want to kind of meditate on scripture or meditate in a more faith-based sense, you can look up, you can Google something called Lectio Divina, Lectio Divina, and that is basically a meditation, a contemplation system on which you just think through different passages of scripture. 
so meditation, anything that engages the creative side of your brain is wonderful (laughs) for calming down. For me, I crochet and knit all the time. I always have yarn with me. If you don't crochet or knit, that's totally fine. (laughs) But there's there's plenty of things that will engage the creative side of your brain. So adult coloring books are a wonderful option. It turns off the obsessive part of your brain and turns on the part where you can just color and be happy. Um, Gardening, people do that. Uh, Woodworking, crafting, uh, creating of any kind. Cooking, um, sometimes even cleaning will take your mind off of things. Anything that your creative mind can actually do and focus on that occupies enough brain space to shut off this part (laughs) that won't shut up like this. Of course, prayer has to be on the list, (laughs) right? Um, I will just say there's not a wrong way to pray. You can combine prayer and meditation. You can combine prayer and coloring a book. You can do prayer by itself. You can do prayer while you're cooking dinner. It doesn't matter. Um, You can separate a time for prayer. (laughs) You can Pray for two minutes and do something else. You can pray for an hour. It doesn't matter. Prayer um, is available at all times. And if you're, if prayer's not a regular part of your routine or perhaps prayer feels a little weird to you, just imagine prayer as though you are talking to a dear friend or perhaps your mother um, and you're just picking up the phone. Just tell this person that you love so much about your life, your day, uh, what's happened this week your struggles, your victories, what you're worried about, that might make it easier for you to pray if you're not having an easy time doing that. Just imagine God as a dear loved one because God is a dear loved one. And above all else, we remember collectively together that we are not alone. No matter what you are feeling this week, no matter what you're going through, no matter how chaotic or how stressful your life seems, you are not alone. We are not alone. God's holy presence has manifest among us individually and together as a faith community. And so I am just going to end with a really simple Hebrew blessing that my mother used to say to me every night when she would tuck me into bed. And it's actually one of my favorite memories (laughs) that she would say this to me every night. And then she'd bop me on the nose a couple of times. <laughs> so I will say it to you because it's very special. And it's very simple and it just goes like this. The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord bless you and keep you. Cause his face to shine on you and give you rest. Amen. So perhaps this week before you go to sleep, say that to yourself (laughs) or say that to your loved one. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine on you and give you rest. And until we meet again, I hope that you will ask the hard questions and that you will perhaps do the hard work of not worrying and calming your soul. Bye friends. See you next week.